Well, it is Good Friday. It's hard to imagine that it's been over a year since we've been living in this reality of the, of the COVID pandemic. I remember last Good Friday, maybe you were with us at that point, we watched one of the Alpha uh, videos, which was called Why Did Jesus Die? And again, it's hard to believe that here we are a year later. Before we jump into reflection today on what is historically uh, remembered on Good Friday, Jesus' death, why don't you take a moment to check in? I invite Jesus to minister to your heart, check in how you're feeling emotionally, and I would invite you to invite Jesus into that place. I'll then pray and we'll transition to this morning's Good Friday message. And so, Jesus, this morning, as we reflect upon your sacrifice, we pray that you would renew afresh in our hearts the pain you endured, both physically and emotionally. And I pray that, that, Lord, this Good Friday, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts. We praise you and we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I grew up in the church, in the Christian church. And so every single year, I would say I've participated, probably since I was born, in some sort of Easter weekend celebration as part of the church. And I'll never forget one particular Good Friday, the church that my family was attending during high school. The pastor gave a message in which he really went into intense, intense depth into the physical pain that Jesus suffered on at his flogging and then on the cross. I'll never forget that message because of how detailed it was and how real the physical pain that Jesus went through became for me. Now, each year of Good Friday, maybe you're familiar with this sort of message. And what I want to do today is I want to focus less so on the physical pain of Jesus, but more on the emotional pain that Jesus endured for you and for me. I think sometimes what we can do is we can, we can focus on the physical pain, and we certainly don't want to de-emphasize that, but we can forget that Jesus in his humanity as the God-man, fully man in human flesh, also experienced emotion. And so I just want to say it real clear. This morning, my hope is that in addition to our knowledge of the physical pain that Jesus endured, that we would also receive the invitation to the emotional pain Jesus experienced, specifically looking at the events leading up to the cross. Now, we're going to be in Matthew 26 this morning, and I think it's worth uh, recognizing before we get to the text that we're going to be looking at, is Jesus' general awareness, his mental knowledge, his awareness of what is to come, which is his passion. Some verses are going to appear on the screen here for you. In Matthew 16, verse 21, We read the first time that Jesus foretells his death and then his resurrection to the disciples. From that time, Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
First instance. Second instance, Matthew 17, verses 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Or the third time, Matthew 20, verse 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, why am I sharing these verses with you? The reason that I'm sharing these verses with us is to show that Jesus knows the reason that he has come and he is absolutely aware of the plan that he and his father had made before the foundation of the world. Jesus is absolutely aware of what is to come. He mentally, intellectually understands what is to come, that he is going to die, but that he is also going to come back to life. Now, the question that I want to look at as it relates to the text this morning is, does Jesus' knowledge and awareness of what is to come translate to sort of a non-emotional or stoic experience leading up to his passion? Because here's my, my thinking and my conviction is that many people believe that if I just have the right thinking, then I, then I shouldn't experience emotional pain or emotional, or emotional hardship or sorrow. I've just got to know the right things. Is that what Jesus shows us? Does Jesus' knowledge and awareness of what is to come translate to a non-emotional, stoic experience leading to his passion? Well, to answer that question, let's go to Matthew 26, verse 30 to 56, in which Jesus has already identified previously in chapter 26 that the hour or the time has come. Let's begin in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They're likely singing a hymn from the Psalms. And we're going to go out to the Mount of Olives. This is following the Last Supper. Jesus has just given them and instituted the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. A map's going to appear on the screen here for you. You can see where the upper room was within the city. They're now going outside the city to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, this being his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Did you hear what Jesus said there? He says, you will all fall away. We may be familiar that Peter will deny Jesus, but not only Peter. Jesus says that all of his disciples at some point will forsake him and run, abandoning him in the face of his persecution. I want us to stop here for a moment, and I want you to imagine knowing that those closest to you will abandon you in your greatest time of need. What would your heart be for these people? Would you stay with them? Or would you leave them before they had the chance to leave you? 
How would you feel? Jesus, in verse 32, says, I'll go before you to Galilee. This is Jesus indicating that though they will abandon him, Jesus will restore them. Let's continue, verse 33. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So despite Jesus' warning, Peter claims here, I'm going to be different, Jesus. He says, I'll never abandon you, Jesus. He's underestimated the test of faith that was sure to come. And Jesus claims that that very night, Peter would deny him not once, but three times. When you imagine for a moment the sadness in Jesus' own heart towards Peter, knowing what is to come, and then seeing Peter's intention. Notice the end of verse 35, what the rest of the disciples say. And all the disciples said the same. The rest of the disciples follow the example, say the same. We'll never abandon you. We'll never deny you, Jesus. Let's go to verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now Gethsemane means oil press, indicating that this is an area of the Mount of Olives where olive oil was prepared. Jesus asked his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice what Jesus does. He takes his inner circle with him. And he asks them to stay awake with him, to be watchful with him. Think about this. This is, this is a powerful ask, an enormous, an enormous indication of Jesus and the emotional turmoil that he is under, asking his disciples to not leave him alone. Verse 39, we see that Jesus then goes and prays and he falls on his face in absolute humility in prayer, laying his life in complete honesty before the Father in absolute surrender. Jesus is facing the most intense temptation. He's about to face the culmination of his life's ministry and work bearing the sin of the world, the cup that he references that he is to bear. And I think we forget sometimes that at this point, Jesus could have said no. He could have taken the road to Bethany and Jericho and not gone ahead with it. What comes next? Verse 40. 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What a contrast of temptations. The disciples here face with a much less temptation. After the quest of Jesus for them to stay awake, they fall asleep. Once again, imagine Jesus. He's asked them to keep awake. And what do they do? They fall asleep. Have you ever felt abandoned? Alone? Unsupported? Unaffirmed by those that you thought were with you? Maybe even those that you've asked to stand with you. Verse 42, again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. A rephrasing of what he said before. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The same cycle repeats two more times. Jesus asks his disciples to stay awake, and what do they do? Fall asleep. Then Jesus goes and prays that if there's any other way, may this cup pass from me. He remains sorrowful and he remains troubled bearing the cup of God's wrath on sin upon himself. What does Jesus show us, though, in the midst of this? Once again, as we saw, he's absolutely aware of what is to come. Well, Jesus exemplifies, Jesus shows for us, he sets an example for us of a healthy relationship between our head and our heart. Jesus knew that he would die He also knows that he will come back to life. He even knew that his disciples would all fall away. And yet he still feels the emotional pain. What this means is that you can both know God's truth in your mind and at the same time feel pain and turmoil in your heart. Let's go to verse 47. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Notice how Matthew words this. Judas came, one of the twelve. He emphasizes Judas' connection to Jesus and the absolute betrayal of what is happening. We read that a great crowd comes. This would be Roman soldiers, Levitical temple police, and personal security for the chief priests. I want you to think about these varying groups culminating and coming here together to arrest Jesus. Verse 48, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. The customary way for friends to greet one another And a kiss is now used as a symbol of betrayal and of denial. 
Verse 49, and he came up to Jesus at once said, and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. You might find it interesting that in the Gospels, we never read a reference of Judas referring to Jesus as Lord as the other disciples do. Instead, he refers to him as rabbi or teacher. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The Greek word that is used here for friend is heteros, which is implying not a close relationship, but an association. It's a word that Jesus used in his parables to represent someone who had taken advantage of a privileged relationship, here attributed to Judas. Verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus that we learn is Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Peter responds to the situation and he uses violence to try and dissuade what is taking place. Then Jesus said to him, how does Jesus respond? Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Notice Jesus' first word. He condemns violence as a means to bring about his kingdom and says that it was about to happen is all part of what he and his father had planned. He condemns the use of violence as the building of his kingdom. This is important for us to understand. And he also says that it was about to happen as part of his father's plan. He then goes on to say, At that hour Jesus said then to the crowds around, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Notice what Jesus is communicating. Jesus is saying that their actions had been prophesied and predicted and that they were now being fulfilled in the scriptures. And then notice how this section ends. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. This is a fulfillment of what we saw in verse 35, what Jesus said would happen. The disciples said, no, we will not abandon you. Yet here they are. Now at a head level, we can make the connection fairly easily. But what about at a heart level? Once again, Jesus is being rejected and abandoned by those closest to him in his greatest time of need. Have you ever felt rejected? Have you ever felt abandoned? Jesus knows that experience. Now we could continue in the text, but we're not going to this morning. But I want to get back to this original question. Did Jesus' knowledge of what is to come lead him to be emotionally stoic? I think it's clear to to answer that question with no. He absolutely felt the emotion. He was troubled. He was sorrowful. He would have felt the rejection of the disciples, the abandonment. 
And so why is this text good news for you and for me this Good Friday? Well, the first reason this text is good news is that Jesus does not disregard our our emotions. He joins us in them. Let me say that again. Jesus does not disregard our emotions. He joins us in them. Jesus not only understands, but also joins us in our grief, in our rejection, in betrayal, in temptation, in abandonment, in weakness, in trouble, in sorrow, because he has experienced what we have experienced. Hebrews 4 verse 15 puts it this way, for we do not have a high priest speaking of Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What this means is that prior to his return, Jesus does not stand back from us. He promises that he is with us in the midst of the brokenness and pain in ourselves and in the world. Dane Ortland puts it this way, while Christ is a lion to the impenitent, he is a lamb to the penitent. The reduced, the open, the hungry, the desiring, the confessing, the self-effacing. He hates with righteous hatred all that plagues you. Remember that Isaiah 53 speaks of Christ bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. He wasn't only punished in our place, experiencing something we never will, condemnation. He also suffered with us, experiencing what we ourselves do, mistreatment. In your grief, he is grieved. In your distress, he is distress. You might find it interesting that some religions decry Christian teaching on Jesus' incarnation and the weakness that they believe the Gospels present in Christ, particularly in his emotion. But brothers and sisters... Is this not the great gift of Christ and of our God? That though he is God, divine, he humbles himself and shows us the heart of God, joining us in our human flesh. The second reason this text is good news is that to know the heart of Jesus is to know the heart of God and to know his love for you. To know the heart of Jesus is to know the heart of God and to know his love for you. You know, John 14, verse 6 is familiar to us. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But notice what verse 7 says. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We see God's heart for us by looking at Jesus. And think about what Jesus endured here in the garden and what he is about to endure. Why does he endure it? Because of his love for you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that what did he do? What did he do? He sent his son. In the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, She narrates the section of Jesus in Gethsemane that I want to read for us in the garden, and then I want to jump forward to the cross. 
But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to pour into Jesus' heart all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But there was something else, something even more horrible. When people ran away from God, they they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away. Not being close to God was like a punishment. And Jesus was going to take that punishment. Jesus knew what that meant. He was going to lose his father. And that, Jesus knew, would break his heart in two. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. And jumping forward to the cross in Sally Lloyd-Jones' rephrasing of My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? She writes, Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Jesus suffers in his humanity, the humanity, the abandonment of his disciples and the forsakenness of his own father on the cross for you and for me. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Another reason that this text is good news is that we can have eternal living now in the ups and the downs. The promise to followers of Jesus, those who trust in his sacrifice, who surrender to him, who follow him, is eternal life. I love the phrasing, eternal living. Eternal living now in the ups and downs. We are rescued. We are free. We don't have to try and justify our existence, discovering or fighting for our identity. And at the same time, prior to Jesus' turn, return, we are bumped around. You've maybe heard me use the illustration before that a laptop without its power cord is going to die. It is inevitable. But through Christ, what we know is that we are connected to our life source. And so a laptop that is plugged in will not die because it has its power cord. But that laptop on this side of heaven, using the analogy, will get bumped around, will get bumped and bruised, yet it's still connected to the source. Jesus tells us what this life looks like in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, in which he invites, but then he also indicates what this life is like. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for what I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Look what he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now please hear me, this is not an invitation to a life of perfect circumstances or no suffering. And the scriptures testify that that should not be how we interpret this. 
On the contrary, following Jesus is difficult. It's cross-like in its nature. And yet we are sustained, we are content, and we are assured because of Christ. This is reflected in what Peter writes to the churches in 1 Peter 1, 3-6. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Eternal living, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice what he writes. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. We can take comfort in the reality that Jesus experienced in his human flesh emotional pain. But then what he goes and does on the cross and through his resurrection is that he secures us a hope, a living hope for the future, which leads to us living an eternal life now. Eternal life now in the ups and in the downs. And once again, why all of this is good news is that through Christ, we can both know and have confidence in our future and at the very same time feel our emotions in the presence where Jesus meets us. Let me say that again. Through Christ, we can both know and have confidence in our future and at the same time feel our emotions in the presence, in the present where Jesus meets us. Is that not what we see here in this text? That Jesus was aware, Jesus knew what was coming in the future, yet in the present he still experienced the turmoil, the turmoil, the suffering, the abandonment, the rejection, the emotional pain. And what he exemplifies for us is how we on this side of heaven live in light of knowing the hope of the resurrection knowing what Christ has done for us on the cross, yet still living in our human flesh, experiencing emotion. And what does he do? He joins us in it. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're feeling abandoned. Maybe you're feeling rejected. Maybe you're feeling alone. Maybe you're feeling like nobody understands. Please hear me. Jesus understands. Jesus joins you. He invites you to invite him into your emotion. You know, I struggle, like all of us do, with rejection and with abandonment. These are deeply, deeply felt emotions. And for a while, I was trying to figure out, how do I manage this rejection? How do I manage this abandonment? And it was through a conversation with, with a friend in which he said, Matt, who experienced rejection? Who experienced abandonment? Who 
can understand what you are feeling and can join you in it. Is it not Jesus? And he encouraged me towards these texts. And the comfort that that brings, that Jesus doesn't stand away from me, but that he joins me because he understands. That's an amazing truth, but it's also a comfort to the soul and a comfort to the heart and a comfort to my spirit. And so my prayer, similarly, as we looked at this text this morning, is that the comfort, the emotional pain that Jesus experienced, the example he sets for us, and what him experiencing that emotional pain means for you and for me, and that we will never be abandoned by the Father because he experienced it for us, that we would take hope, that we would take uh, great joy in that truth, and that we would be quick to invite him, that we'd be quick to invite him into our heart, into our emotions when they're swirling all around. Let me pray for us. And so Jesus, we thank you that you are with us today. You promised that. You said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so you are with us and you want to join us. God, I pray if anyone is listening today who has never considered the deep, the deep importance and reality of recognizing Not only the physical pain you endured, but also the emotional pain that you endured and why you did that. You did that because your love is incredible and immense for us. And it's also an invitation to invite you in. And so I pray that we would do that and that if there are those listening for the first time who've never heard the gospel, that they are loved by God and that God has made a way through Christ for them to be in perfect relationship with you, that you, God, want to join them in their emotion, in their pain, in the brokenness of the world, that we can have hope in the future. Would they trust you, Jesus? Would they follow you? Would you become more than rabbi, teacher? Would you become their Lord? And so, Jesus, we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.